Well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And here as we continue our Lenten journey, for lack of a more uh, new metaphor for Lent, we are walking through uh, a series on what sin is. Um, If you've been with us for any of this series, my hope is you kind of know that, broadly speaking, church folks are (laughs) anti-sin. We're not supposed to be for it, we're supposed to be in it. But what exactly that means, we've been taking a look at throughout this series. We've taken a look at sin as the breaking of rules and commandments. We've taken a look at sin as uh, a relational matter. We've taken a look at sin almost in the language of sickness or impurity. Um, Where are we headed today? So today we're looking at sin in the negative. Um, And to clarify that a little bit more, we're looking at what it means to not do things that then become sinful because we did not do them. So... So there's this idea of the sin of commission, to use one of those big church words, where we do something that we know that we're not supposed to do. You know, lying, murder, those kind. And then there's those sins that we had the opportunity to do something and we failed to do it. And by failing to do it, we have sinned. So negative in the sense of absence of something, yes. not negative. Like there are some sins that are great, positive sins. Well, this is exactly, a happy one. Yeah. More like this is uh, the absence of something, mm-hmm. like the negative space in a piece of artwork is where there isn't something and yet there's a shape there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe it'd be helpful for us to get a little more concrete, um, which seems a little bit weird when you're talking about the absence of something, <laughs> but like what, what, what might be examples uh, of when we're not doing something or failing to do something that now is sinful? So one example that I think of is if I see a hungry person mm-hmm. and I don't feed them. Yeah. Okay. Right. Like somebody who is unable to purchase their own food and then I do not feed them even though i am aware of their hunger yeah yeah and helpfully uh like this calls to mind there's this passage in um uh the the book of james where he makes that exact point right like it's fine to have words but if you don't back it up with action Mm -hmm. what good is that and he goes on specifically to say if you see somebody who's hungry or who is cold and you say be warm and well fed go on your way what good is that and more than just saying that's neutral um, you're pointing out that that's that's now headed into the territory of sin. This is against God's goodwill or go, good intention when we see other people in need and don't offer help or or don't do something for them. Is that sort of mm-hmm. where you're headed? Right, right. And and I think again that concrete action is often necessary in what we're called to do. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think the thing that I struggle with is when some sort of disaster happens in the world whether it's a natural disaster or like a school shooting or, you know, whatever it is. Like a war in Ukraine. Right, exactly. And then people just post on social media thoughts and prayers. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh To me, that is sin. Like, yes, we are called to pray. But I think that prayer has to include actions. If we are capable of doing that action, Mm -hmm. we need to do it. It's not enough to just send up a silent, quick prayer to God or to post something on social media. Like if there is something that you can do, you need to do it. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I think you've helpfully pointed out, and even though our um, topic today isn't specifically about social media etiquette, this is like one of those pet peeves that I, I know I wrestle with or get ups, upset about with that sort of use of social media as virtue signaling of like, I'm not going to actually do thing, something about this, but it's the trendy thing to say, I'm praying for whatever the cause uh, of the day is, but not to let it change your actions or attitudes or how you spend your money or time or anything like that. And yeah, you're, you're sort of getting at you, you get all the positive uh, social response of, oh, good, they, they put that they, you know, put a Ukrainian flag on their social media feed or something like that. But what if, you, if this is something worthy of bringing to God, what are you doing about it, too? Yeah. And, and to be clear, sometimes there's things that you can't actually do anything for. Yeah. Um, like in the New Testament epistles, at one point, somebody was writing about the widows and how the widows in the community, their job was to pray. Mm-hmm. And like, that was their job, but that's what they were capable of doing. Like they didn't have an excess of funds to mm-hmm. help to, to start a feeding ministry. Sure. They didn't have any power or voice or vote to change laws. Like they, they couldn't really do any of that stuff. So their job was to pray. Yeah. So prayer necessary. And if there's something that you feel passionate about where you don't have any ability to do an action prayer is still fine yeah i'm just saying that if you are capable and then you don't do it yeah that is sin and i think you you helpfully pointed out that that sometimes there's a situation where it feels like something needs to be done but i don't know what it is and that prayer can be helpful in in the clarity there as well it's Mm. not just prayer alerts god i think sometimes we treat prayer like okay i've now told god something as though god were not previously aware of the thanks thanks to me god now knows no but that Mm. at least a part of what prayer does is it put something in the forefront of my mind that maybe I'm paying attention and part of God's response is that God points something out to me that I can do as a result of praying about it and reflecting about it. So yeah, prayer is absolutely a good as a, as a first step or part of a multi, you know, level approach. It, it can be a cop out if it becomes our only step ever, rather than I'm also called to do something as well. It reminds me of that old line of um, Frederick Douglass who talked about being um, uh, held enslaved for so many years. And he said, I kept praying and nothing happened. So I started praying with my feet. Um, and that like awareness of action that happens uh, alongside prayer. So, okay. So, so part of sin in the negative sense is when you see there's something that you can do, there's a clear, yep, this would be helpful. This would help uh, address the situation. And we don't uh, respond, don't answer. Um, do you think, does this also apply to, to speech? Like are there times when we're supposed to speak up and we don't, that also mm-hmm. falls in the category of this kind of negative sin? Absolutely. I was thinking of like, when we see something happening, somebody, you know, somebody being mugged, somebody being attacked, and we don't try to at least step in, you know, um, or, 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 you know, say something like you said, Steve, um, it's kind of along those same lines as the thoughts and prayers, you know, but it's a little bit more, usually those situations aren't like something far and distant, like the war mm-hmm. in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. It's something that's happening here and now right in front of me. I need to say something. I need to physically step in and do something. And if mm-hmm. I don't, then I'm allowing evil to occur. So maybe I'm not causing the evil, but I'm allowing evil to continue and to occur. Sure. Sure, sure. And this this is like almost like the the other side of the coin about things like posting on social media, you know, like sometimes that's 
somebody's only platform to say, uh, you know, send a message to the world is what they say on their Facebook or Twitter or things like that. And there's that's a really difficult line for people of, mm-hmm. well, should I say something? Because Otherwise, am I being, you know, a chicken heart by not speaking up? And on the other hand, it can feel like, well, all I, if all I ever do is social media, that can feel like that's not doing anything to make a difference. So that, that can be a really thorny place to navigate. How do I avoid um, sin in the negative in either sense? How do I avoid mm-hmm. uh, letting myself off the hook for action, but sometimes also letting myself off the hook for speaking up and what needs to be spoken up about? I when I, when I think of this whole topic, um, I think quite a bit about that famous story Jesus tells um, that we now call the Good Samaritan, right? And the, at, like at the heart of it, it's about love is action in the, in the positive mm-hmm. and the absence of action when it's called for is clearly seen as a negative thing, right? So even though, as everybody knows, the man is beaten up by robbers and left half dead by the side of the road, the first two religious professionals who walk right past him don't like kick him. They don't make it worse for him, but their refusal to help, even though they are well aware this guy is, you know, bleeding out and half dead by the side of the road, um, their refusal to help is seen as they don't get what it means to keep the commandment to love your neighbor. Meanwhile, the foreigner, wrong religion, wrong nationality, wrong ethnicity, all that, sees and helps and stops the neighbor that it it's not enough just to be neutral right i mean like at mm-hmm. least part of that story is walking by and not doing anything isn't a neutral matter that's a place where you've headed against the will the the design of god it goes back to what you're saying here about you know somebody being hungry and not feeding them mm-hmm. right you know you can walk past a homeless person and you know especially if they're asking for food or money for food like do you walk past them and right. just ignore them or do you Say, hey, let me take you to McDonald's, buy you something to eat. Right, right. And of course, the I think it's it's worth saying because it, it could sound like we are now sending uh, every listener uh, here to our podcast um, to never get around to actually going to their jobs or taking care of their families because they're constantly aware that there's, you know, like that part of the question becomes how do any of us use our resources, which include time as well as money Mm -hmm. to be helpful with actual human beings that cross our path. Cause like this could become almost like paralyzing in the magnitude of there are, you know, millions of people who are hungry and I'm not in a position to drive to each one of them and take them to the grocery store. Many of them live far, far away from me, so I can't get to them easily. Um, so like, how do you navigate this? Like, it, it almost feels like the, the, the whole notion of sin in the negative can become overwhelming when the need that we're aware of is so huge, especially in a time like ours, when we're aware of terrible things happening far beyond the scope of our reach or influence. So I think it's definitely a tension, right? Of like, how do we navigate helping people, but also keeping ourselves safe and being aware of like different nuances. Um, When I was a student pastor serving in British Columbia, I was you know, I was living in a pretty isolated community, but it was a large community of like three to 4,000 people. But like we were then hours away from the nearest town. And so a couple of times my internship supervisor and I would drive to that other town for whatever reason for, you know, church conference or um, because we had an errand there, like a lot of different reasons. 
And he was always very clear because cell phone signals didn't really reach from the two towns that if we saw somebody on the side of the road, we had to stop it. We were morally obligated to stop and to check on those people, but that we had to do it in a safe way and make sure that like there weren't people standing in the bushes getting ready to jump us. And that I absolutely was not allowed to do this if I was by myself. And which then he would also look at me and go, your car also isn't good enough to drive from this town to this other town. So you shouldn't be driving on this road by yourself anyway. But, (laughs) you know, if you are by yourself, don't do it. But as soon as you get to the town, let somebody know that you drove past Mm -hmm. this car because you might be the only car driving past them in a three hour window. Yeah. Um, But it's it's one of those you have to help people when you can. But you also have to be able to do it in a way that's safe sure. for you and for other people whom you are with. Sure. I wonder, too, if and again, I, I don't want us to get into the nuances of public policy, but like the 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 story, the case study of the Good Samaritan seems like one of those places where it might be uh, that you're in the position to help stop the person by the side of the road on your own. But I'm reminded there's a, there's a sermon of Dr. King's where he talks about this story and he says, well, wait a second, even before you get to the guy who's uh, beaten up by the robbers, like how has everybody in the wider community decided it's okay to just have dangerous roads that everybody knows there's bandits on? Mm-hmm. Like maybe mm-hmm. there's other things we could be doing big picture all the time collectively. And uh, I, I don't want to make this like, well, I pay taxes, therefore I don't have to help people. But like part of how um, we help people broadly in our community or county or state or country who are wrestling with food insecurity or without having permanent homes or um, uh, emergency medicine is I'm happy in that sense that part of my tax money goes toward helping make sure that there are assistance programs to help people broadly better than I could do on my own. Like, you know, introvert that I am, I'd be really uncomfortable, you know, walking up to random strangers saying, hey, are you hungry? Can I buy you a loaf of bread? But it's great that there's a Mm -hmm better solution of, you know what, there's a way we can help offer assistance to people who are struggling and have the ability of now to feed their families or have uh, housing or something like that. And, and I guess I see part of that as part of one way of addressing some of the big picture questions and avoiding the, I can't be required to care for my neighbors. It's too big a job. Yeah. For any one of us alone, but that's part of why we do things together. Let's talk about handling all these these big, huge issues, especially those that are you know far away from us. Makes me think of a quote uh, from Mother Teresa, where she said, "We cannot all do great things, but we can do small things with great love." Yeah, and I love that quote of hers because it's talking about like just what we're what we're saying here is like, okay, I can't feed all the home you know all the hungry people all across the world, but I can feed my neighbor. Mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. feed the person I see living on the street. You know, even if it's just one meal, right? You know, I can't feed them every day, three meals a day. You know, but I can feed them for a meal. Sure. They might not have had something to eat in a couple of days. Sure, sure, um, sure. And I guess I even feel too like, and and you had mentioned earlier, Sarah. I'm thinking when there are event time kind of disasters, whether it's a tsunami or an earthquake or say a war in Ukraine, 
clearly I'm not equipped as individual person on my own to go. Uh, I, I know what, what the people of Ukraine need is me to turn the tide and, you know, fly in. No. Um, but to know that there are relief organizations and agencies who do have the expertise and the people on the ground of the contacts and the supply lines, that then it can be a matter of uh, knowing what, what, what organizations or agencies are reliable and are connected there already that then we can help support where whatever resources we can have goes a lot further. Um, and even, even we've talked before, I think in other kinds of conversations, sometimes when it's a disaster or a situation half a world away, um, money is the most liquid asset. And then it, you know, mm-hmm. it can arrive on site with whatever the actual in-kind thing is rather than me going, Oh, the people of Ukraine, I'm sure they want to can Campbell soup from here. Well, no, that gets complicated to transport, but money can immediately get sent more locally and then can, can purchase whatever things are available in, in some kind of cir- circumstances or situations. What, what I've been impressed with the situation in Ukraine is how global companies have chosen to respond to this conflict mm-hmm. and to this war that global companies pulled out of Russia mm-hmm. to show we don't agree with what you're doing. And so we're not going to support you in it. So we're closing down all of our stores, restaurants. You know, we're no longer going to put our products in your country until this stops because we don't agree with it Mm -hmm. and so far at the time of this recording that has not stopped the war right but it's made things uncomfortable sure which i think is and you know it's one way that those companies were able to have their voices be heard right Mm -hmm. and they didn't just idly sit back and say oh no we're going to be neutral in this conflict and we're not going to change anything no, we're not going to support it. Yeah. I am reminded uh, anytime the conversation goes toward the the negative view of center of the things that we're called to do that we don't, there's a, a line of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's that is haunting to me. He talks about, we're called not just to bandage the wounds of the people who are crushed under the wheel of injustice, but to drive a spoke through the wheel itself. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, in Bonhoeffer's life, that's a uh, I'm not just here to say Nazis are bad. He gets involved in a plot to resist Hitler. Um, And again, most of the time in most life situations, we aren't dealing with literal Nazis and and our response does not have to be quite so uh, dramatic. But that idea of that, um, not just avoiding neutrality, but even getting to the root causes of problems can be uh, an important part of the conversation too. that moves us beyond virtue signaling to what will actually help address or, or resolve the situation. And that that's part of what we're called to is how do we help not just pat ourselves on the back? Oh, I did something, but I did something that was actually useful. And your, your point there, Sarah, that for a company that it's not even an option for them to, you know, you don't want Coca-Cola or Starbucks raising their up their own armies. <laughs> um, but yeah, what can they do? They can, they can control the, at least the, the pressure that they can put on in a, in a financial way, in a boycott kind of a way. Um, this also reminds me of um, a, a theme in my tradition, and in, in your my tradition, Sarah, as Lutherans, of um, a way that uh, our older brother in the faith, Martin Luther, talks about how we keep the commandments as well. So in his small catechism, right, he talks about um, the commandment, like, don't commit murder or don't steal. And when he asks this famous question, what does this mean? He turns that into, well, it's not just avoid murdering somebody, but I should actively 
help uh, care for the well-being of my neighbor. And I shouldn't just avoid stealing things. I should actively help my neighbor take care of their property as well. Um, and that has a whole way of seeing this whole conversation in a deeper way that we really do have obligations to our neighbors. Yeah, I, I love how he twists the commandments on their heads that way. Um, because especially with the, your example of do not murder, um, you know, I feel like that's such an easy one. Like when you ask confirmation students, uh, which commandment is the easiest to follow and which one's the most difficult to follow for you, they nearly always say, oh, the commandment do not murder is the easiest one. Like, you know, it's easy to not kill somebody. It's harder though, to take those steps so that others can have life, right? Like that's always much more difficult to, to care and love for each other in such a way that their life will flourish and thrive. And I am so appreciative of voices like you highlighting this and that somebody as you know, uh, far back in our tradition is 500 years ago to Martin Luther to say, like, this is not an option. I think sometimes people treat like helping the neighbors. Well, that's optional. You, you know, as long as you don't kill somebody, you're fine. But it's it's going above and beyond to actually help somebody. And if, if you do that, that's charity if you're helping somebody. And Luther is one of those voices, I think, who, again, is tapped right into the actual spirit of the commandments of no we have obligations, positive obligations to our neighbors to help to care for them. And that it's not just as long as they didn't murder you, uh, we're, we're fine. If, if you have a need and I'm not attuned to it or caring about it, I'm out of step with what God's good intention is. And I, I think that's an important idea. We aren't always good at uh, in America, where so often our sense of freedom is, you can't tell me what to do. I don't have any obligations. As long as my freedom doesn't get in the way of my neighbors, nobody can tell me what to do. So the most I can say is I don't murder my neighbor, but I don't have to help them. That's sometimes is sort of framed as the American you know, spirit of don't tread on me, don't tell me what to do. And I, it seems to me like the, the scriptures say, no, sometimes God can tell us what to do. And it's love your neighbor. That's not an option. That's not a, a negotiable thing. Neutral isn't really a choice. Isn't there a quote, and it's dealing with that neutrality. It might be from Bonhoeffer. Don't, I'm not sure about like those who don't stand up to evil are implicit in it. I've I've heard something along those lines like that. Yeah, and I've heard uh, attributed to Elie Wiesel. Um, oh, maybe that endured, was it. Yeah, uh, yeah, that notion and the notion of anytime you're silenced in the face of injustice, you were already taking sides. That there is no neutrality. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And again, like it, there are some times where the the sides are so stark and clear that yeah, Wiesel's point is well taken. That that neutrality is siding with the oppressor. When you're talking about Nazis, when you're talking about, say, the unprovoked invasion of uh, Eastern European nation, you know, what, whatever. Um, the difficulty then is like, there's also times where you know that speaking up is also a matter of, this is not my business to meddle in. And knowing where where is the mm -hmm. line of, you know, I don't need to take a side on this particular matter, or I don't need to insert myself in every conversation. That's that's It's tricky to know where do you speak up and where is it, this is not needing my input. I guess part for I, I'd, I'd ask your input on that. And for me, part of how I think about it is when when there's the risk or there's the cost or the, the possible sacrifice of skin in the game, 
it's worth speaking up that like mm -hmm. people don't need my unsolicited opinions on things that don't affect me. So I might feel strongly about um, the Coke or Pepsi debate, but if I'm not drinking it right now, I don't, nobody needs my opinion on that. Um, but like in other things, there's a, if I have something to lose, it's worth speaking up. And the, the, the fact that I'm willing to, to bear the loss or, or take the, the hit for, for speaking up for somebody uh, is evidence that it's, it's needed to do. But on things where there's no cost to it, maybe that's a, I'm not sure that I'm always needed to speak up. How do each of you decide in, in situations, whether in your individual life or in church life or on big controversial international issues, like how do you decide where is a place that, that what tells you, yep, here's a moment where I need to act or speak up and what's a moment where you go, I, this does not require my vote. I think for me, part of it is like what you said, Steve, if I have skin in the game, then I need to speak up. But so often with these big, you know, with the invasion of Ukraine or other issues, or even, even with like racism issues, not that I shouldn't speak up, but as a white person, I wonder sometimes, is that my place or do I need to just sit back and be listening to my friends and colleagues and others who are people of color and then just amplify their voices rather than put my own into it. I, and I think that, that's a, that's a fair point. Cause I, I've heard different voices with different perspectives. there, specifically addressing the question of, yeah, if you're part of a, say a white majority, when is it helpful to speak up and when is it you're talking out of your depth? You don't know. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I've heard people say just the opposite, that it's exactly because, uh, folks who are in a, a privileged group can uh, maintain their privilege by not speaking up. It's easy to just stay quiet and say, I'll let somebody else. And that, but that, that's difficult to navigate. How do you know mm -hmm. what's the right moment, the right situation? For me, I think I speak up when it affects my community, okay. not mm -hmm. when it necessarily just affects me. Okay. That's helpful. But like, so, so Ukraine, so the Ukraine war has really affected a couple of my congregation members. Um, and so we talk about it in worship and in my sermons, I, I will mention it. Um, it's part of our prayers. Um, with racism, we talk about it because my congregation is about 35% people of color. Like mm -hmm. it's, we're not, I mean, we are a white majority, but it's not like it's 99% of mm -hmm. us are white. It's, sure it's a much, it's a smaller number than that. We, it's a very noticeable percentage of our community are people of color. Sure. So there's conversation about it. There is confession and laments and, uh, you know, hopefully places to voice anger from people of color or whatever feelings they are feeling. Sure. But so, so creating those spaces to speak and to listen on those issues that affects our community. I wonder too, though, whether there are times, even, even if it's, there's not a direct effect to your, to your community, except that people in our community are looking to us as leaders about how should I think about or how should I, and so often it's when we're silent, people just assume, oh, well, whatever everybody else is saying, you know, especially other religious voice saying, that must be also what we think as well, you know, like, um, and I think for a long, long time, especially on, say, matters of race in, in the United States, in, in communities where everybody was, um, is, you know, like in the Lutheran tradition, in, in places where everybody was, you know, 
of German or Norwegian or Swedish ancestry. Well, we can't be racist. There are no black people here anyway. Well, wait, wait a second there. Um, that, that might be very evidence of that we've had this attitude of we keep ourselves separate. I mean, that kind of thing. That, that kind of logic allowed sundown towns where, sorry, you're not allowed to be in our town after dark if uh, you aren't exactly like us. And then meanwhile, we can all say, well, we can't be racist because there isn't any, uh, anything other than us German Norwegian people here that, that we, we've been complicit in that way too, I guess. You, you see, and I would argue that even in congregations that are made up entirely of white people, racism still affects Ex- that community. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And uh, when a major school shooting happens, it affects your community, even yeah. if the effect is only horror and pain but not like the direct pain of like oh this was my community this was like I knew these kids but just the horror of like oh my goodness this is widespread this could happen in my school with my kids or grandkids or whomever yeah um you know those those things still affect the community even if it's even if it feels indirectly at that moment I think that's really helpful. That that reminds me of, um, there's a chapter in Lenny Duncan's book, Dear Church, where he talks about that the shooter at the Mother Emanuel uh, uh, church shooting years ago was a member of an ELCA Lutheran congregation. And there is that like recognition of clearly nobody in the Lutheran church was advocating shoot other people. But if there's been silence for so long that allowed say, violent uh, white nationalism to coexist with their faith, and nobody had said anything that spoken up against that uh, in all of his faithful upbringing, because maybe people assumed nobody needs to say that. Well, yeah, something has gone wrong, and there's a certain complicity there because nobody stopped and said along the way, even if it seems like it's obvious. Sometimes it's worth saying the things that are obvious, right? Especially for us as pastors who get up every week and say, God loves you. At some point that becomes obvious. And yet we, th- we keep saying that obvious thing that maybe, maybe there's a complicity there. I, I think that's really helpful. Correct to be added, Sarah. Thank you. I guess I want to offer one more thought on this subject as well. It, and I'm, I'm thinking it, it um, I first at least became aware of it from a, a piece from Carl Bart, maybe in the dogmatics where he talks about that a lot of times the, the heroic, what he calls the heroic form of sin gets the press, you know, doing more than you're, you know, claiming to be more than you are. But he talks about the other, the inverse side of sin is what's sometimes called the, the sloth side of sin, the idea of doing less than we are meant to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, for example, humility, sometimes we treat humility as, well, we should, you know, make ourselves as low and wormy and wretched as possible because that's that avoids sin. No, failing to do what we're meant to do is also not God's good intention. And so when we have the ability to be helpful and we don't, that's headed into sin. And when we belittle others so that they feel like they have nothing to offer, that that's also sort of that same negative side of sin. And there are folks who are not ambitious, like in the sense of, I want to take over the world kind of sin, but also the, oh, I, I'm nothing, I have nothing to offer, that that's also a distortion of God's good intention and part of God's good design. No, you have things to offer and being able to affirm what's good in people too. I feel like we're going into really murky waters okay. with, with this because okay. yes, that may be sin, but some of the things that you described also sounds to me like depression. And mm. I think when we start equa- equating mental health issues with mm-hmm. sin, 
I think that it starts becoming really dangerous. That's a helpful guardrail yeah. to put up. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm more thinking like, um, I guess, I, uh, f- for example, um, I think anytime we put up guardrail, we, we put up like um, uh, boundaries to say you're not eligible to help or sh-, like for for you know for a lot of Christian history, it was men in powerful positions saying women you're not allowed to be pastors be you know that kind of thing and that like that's a that's a sinful action on the part of on the part of people with power saying you're not allowed to and that it it forces people into this this notion of um well i want to avoid being too ambitious so i will therefore do nothing because everybody tells me i'm not supposed to like i think in those moments like that that it sometimes gets framed as, well, we're trying to keep you from the sin of overreaching what you're allowed to do. And like, no, that's terrible. Uh, I, I, I guess like my, my I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm aware of, of the danger of equating say depression with mm-hmm. sin, but I guess I'm, I, sometimes I, I get concerned when, um, when we, we advocate in the name of preventing people from being too ambitious or, or that kind of prideful kind of sin, we sort of advocate, therefore the holy thing is squishing yourself into nothing. And so I think sometimes that gets happened. Sometimes the church's hymnody has been, you know, uh, you need to make your, you know, describe yourself and see yourself as a worm or something like that. When I'm not really sure that's, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm landing in the same place. I think you are Sarah about, I, I don't want to say, if, if you're struggling with depression, that's sinful. Or if you're in that, that spot of seeing yourself as low, that's sinful. But if people are pushing you in that position, that's, that's also wrong. Or oh, maybe another yeah. way to look at it is I have spiritual gift A and the church needs spiritual gift A, but I don't feel like using my spiritual gift just because I don't feel like using it. Not because I'm, you know, not because I don't have the energy or because I'm depressed. I just don't feel like using my spiritual gift. And so by not using the gift that God has given you to use, even when you're very well capable of doing that mentally, physically, emotionally, is, is that a little bit better maybe way so. to describe things, you think? Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah, I mean, because there could be a, because, yeah, I think it's getting at that sin is sometimes just intention, mm-hmm. right? And where is your intention for not doing X, Y, and Z? And sometimes the reason for not doing something is because like, yeah, it's that you don't have good intentions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even if that not good intention is either laziness or you, you know, just don't feel like it, or you just tell God, not right now, God, I'm mm-hmm. busy doing this fun thing that I want to do instead of the thing that you want me to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, again, it's just, yeah, with this part, I, I think we just have to be careful about how we talk about it, because sure. we don't mm-hmm. want to make somebody feel like you're sinful just because you have depression, um, oh, yeah. or another mental health yeah. mm-hmm. you know, issue that you're trying to work through. It's, it, it's, it's complicated, but I think any, like, sin is complicated. Yeah. Like, yeah. clearly, we've had a whole Lenten series on 
different types of sin. So it's it's complicated. Maybe you're pointing at a place we've often gone in episodes in this series to say, what are the downsides if this was all we had, our only way of thinking about sin? And one is very easily, you could end up with that like relentless, you're never doing enough kind of because there's mm-hmm. always more hungry people. There's always more, uh, you know, children to be educated. There's always more people to be given medicine to. And if all we ever think of is there's somebody else laying in a ditch by the side of the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, I must go save them. We have a way of maybe casting ourselves as saviors and thinking, yeah, there's never enough. And we talked before in another episode about whatever our our understanding of sin, there has to be some place for rest of you're enough, you're okay, rather than always being inadequate. Mm-hmm. And, and I think so, so this, this episode has reminded me a lot of that uh, movie Luther with uh, one of the Fines brothers in yeah, it uh-huh. as Luther, um, because the way that they really portrayed Luther and Luther's relationship with sin um, was that he struggled with it because he never felt like he was good enough, mm-hmm. right? Like he, and, and that I think is right in line with this view of sin in the negative terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Luther never felt like he was enough and, or that he never was doing enough or he was falling short. And it wasn't until he read Romans and heard that word of grace that God saves him, not he, he's saving himself through mm-hmm. good works, but God is saves, mm-hmm. um, helped Luther come to terms with, I think, especially this view of sin of, you know, he couldn't feed everybody. He couldn't save everybody. He couldn't whatever. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. luckily it's not up to us. Yeah. Yeah. It's up to God. Mm-hmm. So as we've seen all throughout this series, it's a helpful metaphor, a helpful way of thinking about one dimension of sin, but on its own, there'd be dragons, or at least there'd be dangerous ways that it can get abused. Right. So it's hard to imagine, but we've made it all the way almost through an entire Lenten season. And that means that next week, as we take a look at Holy Week, we've got another conversation to sort of bring this series on sin to a close, hopefully in a way that turns us toward what the story of Holy Week is all about. So we hope you'll join us next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you Hi.